Let's go ahead and begin today uh, with a word of prayer. Thank you, God, for your constant and continual faithfulness to us. We acknowledge our weakness and our frailty, and even as we look at a new year, we are faced once again with the need to be continually dependent upon you. We thank you that you are kind, and we thank you that you have redeemed a people for your own name, and it is humbling to us. I pray that you would be with the preaching of the word today, that it would be an encouragement. Also pray um, for uh, uh, one of our friends um, uh, at his church, uh, Christ the Rock Church. Hans is preaching there today. Please be with Hans as he gives the word there, that you'd encourage that body of believers with the word, and that they would uh, be pushed to greater Christ-likeness because of it. We know that the word is... Um, sufficient, and so help us to lean and trust it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a culture today, I think, as most of us would recognize, where instruction of any sort is repulsive. We don't like to be told what to do. And the culture around us does not like to be told what to do. The uh, assumption, the assumption that we have as Christians that the Bible has the authority to dictate how you should live your life is completely foreign to our current uh, cultural climate. If there ever was an era where people wanted to accumulate for themselves teachers because of their itching ears. That era is today. This last uh, summer, we sent out a couple of mailings, uh, as you are aware of, and one of those mailings was uh, centered around depression and anxiety, and and essentially, we said that Christ is sufficient. And uh, if you are struggling with one of these things, then we invite you to trust in Christ to um, see that Christ can help us through our depression and our anxiety. And one of the uh, responses that I received was an email uh, on this particular mailer from someone who asked me, essentially, how can you presume to speak into the lives of people in our community that you don't even know? You, you've, you've never met these people. You, you, you've never sat down across the table from these people to be able to even know if Christ is the answer in this particular situation. How could you presume to speak that way? How could you presume was the argument to give a blanket admonition? I mean, we need an individualized you know, answer in each situation, and Christ might not be the answer in every situation, is what the assumption was here. And this person continued in the email response and actually said that by offering Christ as the solution to depression and anxiety, that we were actively harming our community, is the words that were used in this. 
And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Does God know what is best for us or doesn't he? Is God's word sufficient or is it not? The world has chosen to follow the advice of uh, Phil Collins, right? As told by Tarzan, trust your heart, right? Trust your heart. This is the advice and admonition of the world. This is one of those things that is either or, not both and. You cannot both trust your heart and follow Christ, right? It is one or the other. In fact, Jesus himself says you must deny yourself. And so there are few areas in which it is harder for humanity to follow the admonitions of Scripture than in the area of marriage and sexuality. And yet we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, a chapter from the Lord himself through the inspiration of Scripture, uh, continued instruction after instruction after instruction. Now, considering the fact that it has been some time since we've looked at 1 Corinthians, I need to do a very quick recap of where we are. And I want to remind you of three things that will help us to get our uh, bearings again here in 1 Corinthians. The first thing is what, uh, what concerns the book as a whole. You might recall that in our introductory message in 1 Corinthians, we said that 1 Corinthians doesn't necessarily follow perhaps the kind of outline that we would want it to follow. Um, it, it seems to be a little bit more perhaps disorganized than we would like it to be. We want point one, point two, point three, and so on and so forth. Um, the, the book of 1 Corinthians is what we call an occasional letter. Okay, that doesn't mean it that you read it occasionally. It, it means that it was written to address specific occasions or instances or situations. The fact that 1 Corinthians is an occasional letter means that Paul addresses this topic, and then he goes over and addresses this topic that's kind of unrelated to this one, and then goes over here and over here, and it kind of just seems to be a bunch of random stuff going on. It's an occasional letter. Now, <clears throat> there were, as we saw in our first message, a couple of indicators that Paul would use when he was going to take up a new topic. So there is an outline of sorts. Uh, he basically is telling us, okay, now I'm talking about this topic. Okay, now I'm talking about this topic. Okay, now I'm talking about this topic. Uh, Paul responds to some reports. He does this seven times in the letter. He receives some reports from others in the church. Second, uh, Paul responds to questions. Now, these questions are uh, easy to find because Paul begins each of these sections with the phrase, now concerning. He does this five times in the letter. And so as you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you may want to be on the lookout for these now concerning phrases uh, where he is taking up a new topic. And today's passage begins with one of these now concerning uh, phrases. And this means that Paul is responding to a question coming from the Corinthians. Okay, that's the first thing I want to remind you of, the structure of 1 Corinthians as a whole. He's kind of going from topic to topic to topic, now concerning, okay, and that's where we are here today. <clears throat> the second thing narrows down to our present chapter, which is chapter 7. 
1 Corinthians chapter 7 is really all about marriage and sexuality. Uh, The chapter began with a legalistic group that wanted to forbid sex even between married couples. And now, uh, as we've seen that and gone through that particular portion, the topic is whether or not one should be married at all. And Paul is going to address uh, this. Okay? That's the second reminder where we are in our immediate context of chapter 7. And then the third reminder is I want to connect our present passage with the last section. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24, Paul emphasized the importance of remaining as you are. Do you remember when we saw that a few weeks back? Stay where you're at, okay? And, and he, was, he was talking to a group of Christians who, as soon as they became converted, they wanted to just totally change everything, including even their, their marital status. You say, no, 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 stay where you are. You can, as a believer, be married to an unbeliever, okay? You shouldn't go into that knowingly, but, but if your two unbelievers get married and one of them is converted, you can remain married. You don't have to change absolutely everything. You say, stay where you are, calm down, slow down, and let's think through this, is, is, is what Paul was saying in that particular uh, passage. Today's text picks up on that theme because we have this phrase in our passage today. It is good for a person to remain as he is. Okay, so there's some continuity between that text and this text today. Now, if you recall from that message we saw last time, Paul was not saying you could never make any changes. In fact, Christian sanctification does require change. Instead, Paul was saying that one could serve God in any condition that he found himself. Rich, poor, American, Chinese, you could serve the Lord. Whatever situation you found yourself in, you could serve God there. And so we see that brought over into the text today. So let's go ahead and read this. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verses 25 through 40. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And let those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who they, uh, as though they had no goods... Uh, and those who buy as if they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as if they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. 
So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. We're going to be looking at the following outline today. I'll remain as you are. We're going to see divided interests, parental responsibilities, and then instructions for widows. This first section here, remain as you are, beginning in verse 25 and going through verse 31, uh, starts off in verses 25 through 26, where he says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, I wanted to start with a little bit of a technical note here before we kind of get into uh, the meat of this, and that is um, this statement where he says, I have no command from the Lord. You might recall back in verse 12 that Paul says, to the rest I say, I not the Lord. You remember that statement? To the rest I say, I'm saying this, not the Lord. And then here we have, I have no command from the Lord. And then later in this very same section in verse 40, he will say, I think I too have the Spirit of God. Now, one might be tempted to conclude here that this is Paul's way of saying, I'm taking a break from inspired scripture, and this is my own little opinion, and you know, uh, you could exclude this portion from your Bible and, and, and resume it once I'm done kind of with this particular section. And indeed, there are some who understand that to be the case. However, if we remember 2 Timothy 3.16, we will rightly conclude that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And so we would say that this present text in front of us is profitable because it is included in inspired Scripture. It is given to us by God. And so briefly, what I would like to do is make the same assessment that we made back in verse 12. What we said in verse 12 when he said, I, not the Lord, was simply Paul saying that he had no direct command from the Lord on the particular issue at hand. He had been quoting some statements from Jesus himself, and he was simply saying, I don't have a specific quotation from Christ on this one. Um, and the same is uh, here. He has no direct command from the Lord. And so what we would say Paul is offering here would be new revelation, not something that would be a direct quotation, and that, that would be uh, what's going on in our present text. Understanding that, Paul's command then is very simple. Remain as you are. And he gives the very specific example of marriage. If you're married, stay married. If you're not married, stay not married. Remain as you are. But this particular command does not go unqualified. He gives us this command in light of a very particular, pressing issue, something that he calls, if you look at the passage here, the present distress. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, because of the present distress, remain as you are. Because of this thing that I'm calling this present distress, whatever that thing is, because of that, remain as you are. So 
what is the present distress? That's the million-dollar question here. What, what, what is it that Paul is saying, because of this, you should remain as you are? In light of the present distress, he says those who are unmarried should remain unmarried. What is the present distress? And more importantly, is the present distress continuing today? So that we could also say, because of the present distress today in 2022, you should remain as you are. And if the present distress continues today, are we still to heed Paul's advice on marriage here? So here's, um, here's kind of the, the, what's being kind of wrestled through here. Is the present distress local, temporary, and unique to the Corinthians? making his advice on marriage local, temporary, and unique? Or is the present distress universal, permanent, and common to all Christians in all ages, making Paul's advice on marriage here universal, permanent, and common? You understand what the difference is here? based on what this present distress is. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, if Paul, for example, was thinking specifically of persecution that was local to that cu- culture and context, then it could make sense to understand this passage as a temporary prohibition on marriage. In other words, Paul would, is, is simply saying, if, if this is the case, guys, there's a lot of persecution going on right now, and so just kind of stay where you are. It's going to be better to do that temporarily. We might say it this way. Would you rather go through persecution alone? Would you rather be thrown to the lions alone? Or would you rather stand by and watch as your wife and children are thrown to the lions, as your wife and children are going through persecution. Marriage makes persecution harder, right? I think all of us would acknowledge that there is an increased burden that weighs on us when more than our lives are at stake, when the lives of those that we love are at stake, and when they have to suffer, there's something that wells up inside of us and there is a, a, a much more difficult time that we would have going through persecution. Um, one commentator um, sums up this kind of view or this, this position here uh, this way, and I think it's, it's a good summary here. He says, when high seas are raging, it is no time for changing ships. And I think that's exactly, um, you know, uh, if, if he's talking about persecution, that's, that's what's going on here. Basically, there's persecution going on, and the sea is rough. Let's just let it settle down before we do too much here, is essentially what's going on. But whether or not Paul was talking about a temporary crisis is unclear. Some people would say, Paul is not talking about temporary persecution. He's talking about Christianity in general. And we can understand this because I think all of us could acknowledge that, in a sense, we are going through a present distress even now. 
in our present day culture wars that we're going through right now. Um, so which one is it? Is it a temporary thing and thus all of this advice on marriage is temporary, reserved for that particular day and age? Or is this a permanent ongoing thing and thus this is something that characterizes uh, the entire lifetime of the church? Um, I don't know. I am inclined to believe that it doesn't really matter because what this passage is getting at is that we are to avoid a flippant attitude toward marriage. The permanence of marriage should cause us to enter into it with great intentionality and great reverence. And so Paul is simply saying here, whether this is talking about something temporary the church is going through, whether something is permanent the church is going through, he's simply saying, just know that when you get married, there's going to be added difficulties. There's going to be a different life situation than you're in right now. Just think about that. And then the church can identify throughout its history, there are different things that we could call this present distress, and we are going to have to use godly wisdom to be able to say, how should I act in this situation, in this day, in this age, using the wisdom from this particular passage? Either way, Paul doesn't give an absolute prohibition, right? Even if this is the permanent advice or, or temporary to a specific situation, Paul does not give an absolute prohibition anyway. He says, it's good to remain as you are, but if you don't, you haven't sinned. Look at verses 27 to 28. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who, have, uh, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. So, the difficulty of this passage lies in its application. Okay, what am I supposed to do? Because it sounds like Paul is saying, don't get married. But if you want to get married, you can get married. <laughs> so, so, so what, what exactly is going on here? How, how am I supposed to apply this in my own specific life? If you are already married, the application is pretty clear. Remain married. And we can go to many other passages that talk about the sin of divorce. But if you are not married, the application seems a bit unclear. Should I seek it or should I refrain from it? And in order not to give anyone a guilty conscience, Paul clarifies that those who marry do not sin. In fact, this is part of the goodness of God. In fact... Let's put all of Scripture together. What does Paul think? And we can say this is inspired Scripture, obviously. What does God think about those who absolutely prohibit marriage? What, 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 it, what, what, is, what does he say to someone who's given the advice, it is a sin to get married? What does he say to that person? 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3. To absolutely forbid marriage is actually said to be the teaching of demons. Now, this, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 3, Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith 
by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons, and he's going to tell us what this is, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who do what? Forbid marriage. One of the things on this list. Forbidding marriage, according to Scripture, absolute prohibition. It is a sin to get married. He's saying that is something that is a teaching of demons. So in order to understand this passage, we're going to need to recognize the importance of category distinctions, right? This is a helpful way to think of things in categories, right? So we have a category that we would call the moral category. This particular action is right or is wrong, is good or is bad, is, is, is sin or is not sin. That's a particular category that we have. And so things that would fall into this would be things like murder, right? It is a sin to murder. Then we also have another category that we would say over here is uh, practical considerations. It's not necessarily right or wrong, but we want to exercise some wisdom on what we do here. This particular decision that we're facing here is not a moral category, but is a practical category. Paul explicitly says it is not a sin to marry or to refrain. You can marry and not sin. You cannot marry and not sin. And so the consideration then is what Paul talks about as worldly troubles. You are to enter into marriage with wisdom, knowing the difficulties that can arise. He's simply saying just exercise some wisdom here is what he's doing. Additionally, he's emphasizing the relationship between the temporal and the eternal. 1 Corinthians 7, 29 through 31. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Okay, what does this mean? Live for the eternal. That's what this is telling us. You see that last line? The present form of the world is passing away. Paul is simply acknowledging that this world in its present form is not eternal. It will not last forever this way. God is making all things new. He will remake the heavens and the earth. And so he's simply saying, consider what you are investing in. Where are you giving your time and your energy? Where is that going? Is it going into everything that's temporal? Is it going into things that are eternal? What's the ratio there? How is this all working out? That's what Paul is simply saying here. Whenever we talk about the relationship between the temporal and the eternal, we are tempted to fall on a ditch in either side of the road. I want us to think about this for just a moment here. Um, we live in a world that we are just passing through. Um, there is eternity in front of us. And so we are, as Christians, 
to focus on the things that last forever. On the other hand, we have to eat. You're going to go home today, and you're going to cook food. Or you're going to go get pizza or something, whatever, okay? you're, You're going to go deal with the physical needs, okay? You're going to go home today, and you're going to eat. You might take a Sunday afternoon nap. You might have to change some diapers. All of these things are our physical needs. And the temptation of some throughout church history has been to say that that's worthless. And we could look to monks as an example of this, right? The, the, The question that we face and that we wrestle with is, how am I... Where do I land in this, right? Does anyone ever feel that tension? Okay, all the time. Someone feels it all the time. Yeah, it's it's we we constantly are feeling this tension because on on the one hand you're you're dealing ministering to the physical needs of your own family, and then one day you kind of wake up and you say, "I, I want to do more that counts for eternity. Anyone ever feel like that? Okay. And then on the other hand, you're, you're saying, I want to do more that counts for eternity, and then you're like, but am I neglecting the responsibilities that God has given me over here? Real tension? Okay. On the one hand, we are tempted to be an overly pious ascetic, asceticism, right? We're tempted to say that only the spiritual matters and everything temporary is irrelevant. I'm going to live only on bread and water, and I'm going to go off into the wilderness somewhere and just totally be a monk. On the other hand, we are tempted to live as as if only this world mattered and all of our time and all of our energy and all of our effort is invested here. And and sometimes, for some of us, we vacillate between those two. You know, like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, this I, I would suggest to us, and we might think that this is an unlikely place because he's talking about marriage here. This passage points us to the delicate balance between these two extremes. Do you, do you see both here? It, if, if Paul was the overly pious ascetic, what would he say? He would say, I forbid you from getting married. What a waste of time. Go, right? And, and, and on the other hand, you know, he would just say, no, go invest all in in marriage and just forget about... You see how he's kind of like feeling the same uh, as we're, do you, do you feel kind of the, he's, he's giving us instruction on how to land in this particular area, in this particular issue. We are not to discard the temporal. Instead, we are to invest in our families and in our marriages and in our communities and minister to the very real physical needs that exist. Fathers are to provide for their families. Mothers are to care for the home. These are duties that must never, ever be neglected. 
We are to feed the hungry, help the poor, and assist those affected by the tornadoes in Kentucky, right? We are, we are to invest in these kinds of things. The unmarried are permitted to pursue new families by getting married, which both creates new needs and also provides for new needs. Paul's statement in verse 31, I think, ties this up well. He says, this present form of this world is passing away. We have to live on this proverbial tightrope, so to speak. Living in this world is much like staying in a hotel. You pack light when you go to a hotel, okay? You don't pack up all of your belongings in a U-Haul because you're going to stay overnight at a hotel somewhere. I don't think anyone does that, okay? You pack as light as you possibly can. But you also provide for the needs of your family while you're there. You don't go to a hotel and say, look, this is temporary, guys, so we're not eating on this trip, okay? No, you go and provide for the physical needs. You get a meal, you get rest, you take care of hygiene needs, and all of those kinds of things that you do at a hotel. You don't neglect those things just because you're away from home. But you also don't give too much thought to the curtains on the wall or the color of the wall. Uh, You don't really care much about the carpet choice. Even more foolish would be to actually go out to the store going to make a target run to put some new curtains in this hotel room. No. Why would you do that? It's temporary. You, you don't invest that much into one night at this hotel room. You live with a small amount of tension here. You might even say to yourself, oh, I wish I got that bigger hotel room, a little more comfortable. But then you say, ah, oh, it's only here one night and it's not worth the extra expense, right? This is kind of what living in this world is like to, to, to a degree. And there's a similar tension in the text in front of us. We, we are informed of the trouble that can come, and yet at the same time, you're free to choose. You're not forbidding it. Be aware of the difficulties. Be aware of, particularly in times of persecution, the trials that could come. But it's not a sin to go and do this. The important thing to remember is that we are to make decisions in light of eternity, as verse 31 reminds us. This world is passing away, and we should proceed accordingly. So, where is the exact line of tension? Well, as someone has said one time, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian, right? And we know from Proverbs the importance of a multitude of counselors, And so um, it is going to take knowing the whole Bible to knowing how in each particular situation we can best live that tension out. And we have one example here in our present text on the issue of marriage. And there are hundreds and thousands and millions of other applications and examples of how we do this. And this is part of the reason, of course, why we have Scripture, but also why we have... uh, a church community here so that we can rely on one another as we navigate through these particular issues. The world is passing away and we should proceed accordingly. Now, keeping this thought in mind, Paul continues to demonstrate the relevance of this advice in verses 32 to 35. 
He tells them in verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. The married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So he simply says married men are concerned about caring for their families. Unmarried are able to devote more time directly to the Lord. And in verse 34, he says his interests are divided. Um, Keep in mind that Paul does not say once again, Married men are supposed to neglect their duties. He does not say that. He's saying you do have to watch out for your duty. You do have to fulfill your duties. Paul does not admonish them to neglect their responsibilities. Rather, he informs them of what their responsibilities will be. And just to give some examples in Scripture on this, I mean, just, just we're going to look at what, one, two, three, four, just five verses real quick here on this. But we can go to many more. Um, married individuals are not told, neglect your duties. They're told, fulfill your duties. So wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is his, himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Colossians 3.18-19, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. 1 Corinthians 7, in our very chapter here, earlier in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Scripture is full of saying, fulfill your responsibilities, fulfill your responsibilities. So this is not a call to neglect those responsibilities. And then in particular, verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. All right, so what's the principle? Undivided devotion to the Lord. That's the part you want to underline here. Undivided devotion to the Lord is significant, is important, is paramount here. Paul is saying very clearly that he does not want to lay any restraints on you. He doesn't want you to feel guilty. He doesn't want you to take on an unwarranted conscience scruple. He's he's not trying to bind your conscience. He's not trying to make you feel guilty because he's saying you can do this. He's just saying, I want you to know this is the reality of of this path and this is the reality of this path. you see how he's walking this, this line, this tension of trying not to fall into this ditch or this ditch? And this applies not only to individuals, but also to parents as they are ministering to their children regarding the decision to marry. And this is where we see in the third section uh, the responsibility of parents. 36 through 38, if anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let them do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed as well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. 
One commentator said that this is the hardest passage to understand in 1 Corinthians. Whether it is the hardest or not, it is hard. And the reason for that is because the question is, is Paul talking to parents here or to individuals considering marriage? Um, The ESV uh, translates this word betrothed, uh, whereas other translations translate it as virgin, uh, implying that a parent is considering whether or not to allow their virgin child to get married or not. And so that's really been the debate. The early church almost unanimously believed this was talking about a parent considering whether to permit their child to be married or not. Um, So this, of course, would be in more of a culture of arranged marriages, right? Now, our culture does not practice arranged marriages, and I am not advocating that we return to that, okay? On the other hand, our culture typically views the input of parents into marriage decisions as totally irrelevant, And that does need to change. If anything, parents are more equipped to give godly counsel into marriage decisions because they have accumulated more wisdom, right? And so parents should be uh, giving input into these particular decisions uh, into the lives of their children. I tend to think that this is parents to children, uh, but either way, the principle is really the same, um, and he just continues this idea of the wisdom of, do I get married or do I not get married? Which takes us to the last section, verses 39 through 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord, yet in my judgment she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think I too have the Spirit of God. So Paul simply applies the same principle to widows. You can't divorce your wife, and a wife can't divorce her husband. But if he or she becomes a widow, then they're free to remarry. Um, All right, so what do we make of this today? This is a little bit fast-paced, and I probably uh, bit off a little bit more than I could chew in 16 verses. So I'm sorry to just rush through that really fast. Um. But what do we make of this? How how, how can we apply this and think through this? When you read this passage, you walk away from it thinking that it sounds a bit like this. Don't get married, but if you want to, you can get married. And that kind of seems to be unhelpful. Is that what this is saying? Is that, we might ask, the meaning of the passage? Can we all... Uh, walk away and apply the text that way. What are we to do with these 16 verses? Well, I want us to look at the heart of the passage, which is verse 35. And Paul says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your what? Undivided devotion to the Lord. Married, unmarried. What are you to do? Devote yourself to the Lord. 
Do you see then how this passage, whether you are married or whether you are unmarried, can be applied to your particular situation? Devote yourself to God. That's the application. Devote yourself to the Lord. That's the point. That's the heart of the passage. If marriage helps you to devote yourself to God, then get married. And if refraining single helps, or remaining single helps you to get, devote yourself to God, then remain that way. So we apply the passage this way. Devote yourself to God and live accordingly. In your particular situation where you are, what strengthens your resolve to devote yourself to God? Paul is walking a tightrope in this text between the hedonists, loving pleasure, and the ascetics, the monks. He's walking this. We want nothing to do with either. We are not to pursue the error of the hedonists and live only for the pleasure provided by the physical, right? We want to live that way. And we are not to pursue the error of the ascetic and neglect the physical and live as if this world were a mirage. So here are the two errors to avoid. The error of hedonism is this. The eternal doesn't matter. This is the error of living only for this present moment, only for, for my fleshly appetites, only for what makes me happy and pleases me right now. That's the error of hedonism, and that's what we are called to avoid. We're also called to avoid the error of asceticism, and that is that the temporal doesn't matter. God has placed us in a physical world and has given us physical needs, and it matters. This passage brings them together and says they both matter. But it ranks them too. It does rank them. It says that we must prioritize the eternal. That's clearly more important. But it doesn't mean that the temporal is unimportant. Right? They both are important. It is just that the eternal is more important. And so once again, live accordingly. And so let me just summarize this down to two points of application. Number one, what we've already said, devote yourself to the Lord and live accordingly. And then number two is avoid the errors of the hedonists and the ascetics. We want to avoid both of these errors. Walking what sometimes appears to us to be a very fine line in wisdom. And again, we could continue the application of this passage and say, are you going through a particular situation where you are saying, I'm trying to find how I should conduct myself in this particular scenario? Guess what you have access to? You have this, and you also have the wisdom of your church family here in front of you. And so let's walk through these things uh, together. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for the gospel and the hope that's available in Christ. Help us to devote ourselves to you, to live accordingly, 
to look to you for grace and hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.